Hi, Roby. Hi, Emma. And hi, everyone. Welcome to our fifth episode of Zoology Ramblings. We love Zoology Ramblings. (laughs) So this week, we're going to split our podcast into parts, just so it's a little bit easier for listeners to kind of split it up. So part one is going to be our animals of the week. So I'm going to do the Mexican hairy dwarf porcupine, which is epic. Roby, what are you going to do? I'm going to do a new species of beaked whale in Japan in the Sea of Okosk. Ooh. Mm. And then um, part two is going to be our global conservation issues. So this week I'm going to do about the fires that are happening in Bolivia. Um, what are you going to do, Roby? I am going to do the plight of the Sumatran rhino in Southeast Asia. So get ready because this could be quite an emotional and quite a heavy hitting global conservation segment because it's really depressing. <laughs> well, it's quite hard hitting, but important that people know about it. Yeah. Uh, and then part three is going to be our local conservation issue, which is beavers, um, which we were going to do last week, but we didn't get around to. So <laughs> we're going to do it this week. We, we're, we're so passionate about beavers. We wanted to devote, we wanted to give them the right amount of time and we will definitely still run over with these beavers, but <laughs> We just love beavers, okay? And by the end of this, you will too, because they're all <laughs> rodents. We convert everyone to beavers. <laughs> yes, you'll all be beaver lovers. It's, it's they're great. Do you want to go first, Emma? So this is part one of the podcast, and yeah, so it's going to be animal of the week. Yeah, super. So as I said, I'm going to do the Mexican hairy dwarf porcupine, um, which kind of a lot of it is in the name, so it's quite hairy. It's pretty small. <laughs> um, its Latin name actually means quilled pig, so <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's what my Latin name means as well. <laughs> it happens. Can I ask a question? Is there a Mexican hairy giant porcupine? Um, I don't think there is actually. This is kind of the, the main porcupine that you get in Mesoamerica so so across Central America and up into Central Mexico um, but a hairy giant porcupine now that would be awesome um, <laughs> love to see a huge one of these um, so if you haven't looked one up um, they are so they have a hairless head and they have a bunch of yellow quills on the head. So it's got like this yellow tinge. Um, and this is what they use to defend themselves against predators. And they've kind of got this large pig, pig-like bulbous snout. So it's kind of look a bit like a pig. They've got a hairless head, a hairy body, a prehensile tail. So they've got it all really. They're, they're just amazing. <laughs> They sound like they're set for life, really. Anything that comes along, they'll be fine. Um, just if anyone out there is an authority on porcupines or has a particular interest in porcupines, it is probably worth noting that porcupines are actually two groups in the rodent family. So you've got the old world porcupines, which are Histricidae, and then you've got the new world porcupines, which are Erevisontidae. And so they're, they're, they're two different groups. So that's something to watch out for if ever you're porcupine hunting. 
So this would be a new world one, is that right? Because that's sort of the Amer Americas, which would encompass yes, sort of the new world. Yes, it would be a new world one. And so I think they're both in his history cognathy, which is an infra order within Rodentia, but because, you know, everything on the planet is a rodent, they're actually not that closely related. Um, and I think, ooh, yeah. The, the the differences between them so if you ever have a porcupine and you see it in a zoo and you don't know where it's from it's a new world porcupine if its spikes are attached singly it's an old world if their spikes are attached in clusters although i imagine you don't want to get close enough to find out <laughs> yeah i feel like if you're that close you're probably going to have them impaled in your skin um <laughs> which isn't fun because the ones on this the mexican dwarf porcupine they apparently have these barbs on, on the quills so that if they actually get stuck in an animal's skin, they're really, really hard to remove. So you'd just be walking around covered in, in quills, which is very painful. Um, but I guess it works for the porcupines because there aren't many things that predate on them. Or I mean, things try, but you wouldn't want to get a mouth full of quills, really. Um, I, I imagine a jag would give it a good go. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Wildcats and birds of prey are kind of the things that tend to attack them. How big is this hairy dwarf porcupine? Quite small. Which uh, I imagine is mostly tail. Yeah, so a large yeah. part is that prehensile tail, um, but they are one of the smaller species, hence the, the dwarf part in their name. Um, and part of this is because of sort of their lifestyle, they're arboreal, so they need to be quite light and agile because they're, they're foraging up in the canopy. Um, and yeah, they use that tail to sort of cling on and sort of grasp, um, sort of branches and things like that. Um, and that's another, that's another good way to tell what kind of porcupine it is, because the old world porcupines are not arboreal. So if you see them on the ground, it's probably one of them. Whereas the new world ones, I think they're all, are they all arboreal? Maybe? Is there an exception? There probably is an exception. Nature's full of exceptions. I feel like there would be because there are definitely some that burrow. It's more, I think you have some burrowing ones. Because um, these ones. Did you ones, see one in Mexico? I actually saw one in Costa Rica. Um, ah. So it was at a wildlife sanctuary, one that was in the process of being rehabilitated called Toti, who was lovely. Um, <laughs> and she used to come up while we were doing research on the sloths because they're nocturnal so she'd just come up wander and be like what on earth are you doing why are you sat in my territory um but she was very sweet she just sort of they make the sweetest noise as well they kind of squeak when they're happy or they want something so because she was used to kind of receiving food and things from sanctuary staff it's just like this contented squeaking if you gave her nuts which was just the cutest thing ever <laughs> Um, it's the same thing you do when you get given dried pasta, I seem to recall. Exactly. <laughs> I'm occupying. That's exactly what I do. <laughs> <laughs> but where I got this from, I'll share the link in the comments. But what Monga Bay are doing, which is this fantastic conservation sort of website, which Roby and I use a lot um, for sort of news stories, they are releasing a new episode of Candid Animal Cam every week, which is something they've started doing. And so what this is, is showing animals caught on camera traps around the world. Um, and so this last week's one was the Mexican hairy dwarf porcupine. So that was footage from the Osa Conservation, 
um, research group um, in Costa Rica. So check that out because they've got a bunch of really awesome stuff on camera traps and who doesn't love a camera trap because it's they're great. I personally love a camera trap. <laughs> so check out the Mexican hairy dwarf porcupine, Google it, look up pictures of it, check out their, um, the link about the camera traps because they're wonderful yeah. little spiny creatures that squeak when they eat nuts. So yeah, they're great. Ah. Like Emma, yeah. Send so, yeah. <laughs> all the porcupines to <laughs> cool so shall i start with the new beaked whale please do oh i just i love it when people tell me to please do talk about animals so it's it so rarely happens everyone's like please shut up most of the time <laughs> <laughs> okay so i am going to be telling you all about Baradius minimus the sato's beaked whale or if you're japanese the kurotsuchi so this is from a paper in Nature in 2019 by Yamada and Kitamura et al. Again, we shall put the link in the description. Um, and this study used observations of Japanese whalers off of Hokkaido, so the northernmost island of Japan, the northernmost most big one, uh, to distinguish a new species. And they compared specimens from strandings using DNA and bone and morphological data. So a little background about beaked whales. So beaked whales are the family Ziphidae in the, Odon sorry, the Odontoceti group. So those are all the toothed whales. So your sperm whales, your dolphins, your orcas, your porpoises, narwhals, that sort of thing. Um, and Ziphidae, the beaked whales, actually have 26 species. So they're the second largest number of species among the whales as a group. But we know very little about them because they're super, super deep divers. Um, and they're quite small. Uh, and so this is a new species of beak, giant beaked whale. So one of the larger ones of Ziphidae. Um, this goes with your trend. Either your animals that you pick are extinct or you know hardly anything about them. And it's like a mystery trying to figure out what they do. <laughs> I love a mystery. That's, you know, that's part of the part of the part and parcel of zoology. <laughs> It's exciting when there's not much information about them. In fact, as I'm going to go on and say, this new whale is in the genus Baradius, but because we know so little about it, we have to extrapolate almost everything we know from its two sister species, the Arnaud's beaked whale and the Baird's beaked whale, which are also Baradius. So Arnaud's lives in the South Pole and Baird's lives in the North Pole in the Pacific. Um, and this new species, the Kurosochi, was distinguished in 2016 and has been formally named in 2019. It's about six to seven meters long and almost entirely black. So very hard to study in the dark waters of the Pacific. And because it's such a deep diver, we barely ever see it at the surface. Because didn't they actually um, set a record? It was a, wasn't it a mammalian record for the deep, deepest dive and I think also longest dive of a whale? I seem to remember reading that. Yes, that was a Cuvier's beaked whale, Xiphius cavirostris, I think. So don't hate me if I got that Latin name wrong, but that's just off the top of my head. Um, is in fact the deepest diving and longest diving mammal. They can dive to twice the depth that a nuclear submarine would collapse at. Um, wow. Because they can collapse their lungs and they shrink all their blood vessels. And it's, it's really cool. <laughs> uh, so yeah. That they 
it was kind of something that was threatening them in a sense because of this aspect they dive so deep um I seem to remember reading something about how sonar um was severely affecting them in the sense that if they're such deep divers and they come up really really quickly because of sonar you're getting a lot of strandings and um sort of yeah that kind of disturbing their behaviors yeah so deep underwater sonar if it spooks them and they and they go up really quickly the same way a human diver does they get the bends and in fact this species was um identified purely by comparing strandings um of specimens that washed ashore so we know almost nothing about its behavior <laughs> but it probably moves in pods of between five to twenty led by a single large male um, it can probably dive to around 800 to 1,200 meters. Um, wow. but there's a yeah, but there's a really weird thing going on with this species because females are larger and therefore are more preferable for whalers, you would imagine, because whalers will target the larger whales. But over two thirds of all specimens caught are males and no females of this new species, the Kudosochi, have ever been observed. So something's up. That's really unusual because you would have thought there has to be some like relatively even sex ratio um, in terms of like strandings and stuff. That's unusual. Yeah. It would affect them differently. And so females of the other two Baradia species, the beds and the Arnos, have been found. So the hypothesis is at the moment that these, these minimus Baradius have some kind of weird social life where the females just like are never seen and they're just chilling in the middle of the Pacific and no one knows where they are. But we don't know. We have no idea what's going on with them. So yeah. So be I mean some like reproductive behaviors or something like that because like you say they they dive so deep there's so little known about them. It yeah it could be something going on with that that we just have no idea about. Yeah. I mean, add to the fact that they spend less time during at the surface. When they do spend time at the surface, it's usually at night, probably to avoid predation by sharks and killer whales, because, you know, they're not the biggest whales. So you barely ever see them even when they're at the surface, because it's a black whale at night in a black sea. Because <laughs> didn't they used to be pre like they, these some of the, the species are quite old. They might have even been preyed upon by things like Megalodon in the past, possibly. Ziphidae as a family are one of the oldest uh, odontocete lineages, yeah. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if there's any dates for when Baradius itself as a genus emerged, but if it emerged in the Miocene or the Pliocene, it's definitely uh, the prime food size for a big shark like Atodus megalodon or the giant uh, macroraptorial sperm whales that used to exist. Yeah. So that is my animal of the week so we are going to end part one here uh join us after the musical interlude or the break grab yourself a coffee have lunch do whatever um and afterwards we're going to talk about our global wildlife issues see you after the break see you later Welcome back everyone, this is part two of episode five of Zoology Ramblings, so this is our global conservation issues. 
Um, so I'm going to start by talking about the wildfires that are happening in Bolivia at the moment. So since March this year, there have been more than 120 major fires in Bolivia's Amazon rainforest. Um, and obviously, we've, we've heard it all in the news since the start of this year, 2020. Everything's been a mess, but the wildfires are something that have defined a lot of, lot of the issues that have been going on. It's been so extensive and catastrophic for forests and the biodiversity that lives there. Um, is, this, is this the Bolivian Amazon? Yes. Yeah, so it's, okay, cool, yeah. So this is the Bolivian Amazon, and one of the most recent fires, um, this was on an article on Monga Bay again, which I'll, I'll share the link to. So it's threatening a wildlife sanctuary um, called Ambue Ari Comunidad Inti Warayasi, which is a bit of a mouthful to say, but you can just <laughs> C-I-W-Y. <laughs> That's the acronym for it. Um, and they are a fantastic organization, conservation group. It's um, a non-profit organization. And what they do is they rescue, protect and rehabilitate wild animals. So that's from things like Ill illegal trafficking, circuses, mistreatment, kind of abuse, things like that. And they've been doing this for 28 years. Oh, wow. They've been going a while. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't hadn't heard of them before. One of my friends is working out there, which is why I knew about it. Um, but yeah, it's been quite badly affected um, at the moment because, I mean, if you look at the pictures in the article, it's just everything's covered in smoke. It's everything's so dry. Everything's burning, um, and it's. Be becoming really really hard for people on the ground to control it because there's been very little intervention from sort of government in terms of what they need is air kind of um, aerial support um, because it would be great if they had things like drones um, kind of mapping of the fires to see where it's actually starting and then they could direct the, re the water resources to where it's actually starting but at the moment they've got 15 people on the ground trying to not only like care for the animals that are all in the sanctuary, but then at night they then have to go and put out fires. And so that's not, 15 people is not enough to, to try and control it. Sounds awful. It sounds a bit like Mordor. Um, so why, are, why have these fires started? Is it, is, it a, is it linked to global climate change in any way, or is this a, a, a more anthropogenic we're starting the fires like literally going out with flamethrowers and stuff what what is the cause of all this i mean i would i'd put climate change as a driving factor just the fact that it's it's drier than normal um but a big concern people have had is kind of it's down to the bolivian government and not just the bolivian government it's governments all around the world that have been kind of advocating for land clearing and changes of land use so converting forests into agricultural lands um, and as you do that you make the landscape drier you've got like soil erosion less um, tree cover um, so everything becomes drier and it's just this massive inferno um, at the moment because as i understand it you know primary rainforest habitually doesn't burn unlike some of the african mosaic savannas which you do get 
you know, seasonal wildfires going through, which are an important part of the ecosystem. I don't think pure rainforest, simply because it's too wet. I don't think, you know, large swathes of the Amazon naturally goes up as part of the cycle. So is this the result of, you know, a human modified landscape being more susceptible to wildfires? I would say yes, human modification is going to have massive um, sort of consequences in terms of wildfires because as you've got timber sort of um, trucks going in, they're building roads, they're clearing large sections because like you say with primary rainforests, um, a lot in sort of Central America as well and South America, kind of they generate a lot of moisture um, and everything works, that's the thing, if left alone it's kind of like a self-maintaining ecosystem. But as soon as you've got land clearances or changes to that, then this is the kind of thing that happens. Um, I think that's probably why, you know, as a global society, we're finding wildfires quite a hard thing to get our head around. Because in a lot of areas, wildfires are a part of the, nat nat you know, the natural cycle. So the redwood forests in California habitually have wildfires come through, which helps the trees disperse their seeds, clears the understory, and it's a part of the natural cycle. But where we confuse that with habitats where we're coming in and modifying it, and then you get these uncontrolled blazes across most of California now and Oregon, we're finding it quite hard to distinguish between the two. I, I get the impression from the media. Yeah, I think it, it's hard to know what would just be natural kind of control and how much is human because you you've got humans intervening with the landscape so changing the landscape bringing in roads cutting down forests um but then you've also got human activities that are contributing to a warming climate and climate change so that's kind of indirect but all of that put together is what is leading to these massive fires across the world um and i think it was quite hard so reading this article is really hard hearing the opinions of the people who were there like they were saying that they felt kind of really hopeless and just angry because they're not receiving any of the help that they need and because of the pandemic as well this wildlife sanctuary has been very hard hit they hardly have any volunteers because you can't no new people were allowed to to go to the sanctuary to help so it's been the same people there battling the fires for weeks now and there's no sign of help coming for, in terms of from government um, organisations. Do you, do you get the sense that there might be a little bit of a little bit of uh, an injustice being done here? In that you know, when Australia is on fire, you have a massive outpouring of global aid, and when you know parts of the northwestern US are on fire, you have a massive coordinated global response. But you know, in places in the, you know, more isolated global south where this occurs, there doesn't seem to be this much of a response. I mean, I, you know, when you look on the news at the moment, you see California's burning, Oregon's burning, Australia's burning, we've all got to do something about it. I had not heard that Bolivia was on fire. So do you think there is an imbalance there? Is that, is there also an element of human discrimination going on? I think massively. I mean, it's just with this example, but in the news generally, anything that's happening that isn't, I mean, this might cause offence to some people, but like things that aren't happening like in the Western world or something that's imminent, imminently affecting kind of the wealthier West, it mm -hmm. doesn't tend to be um, publicised as much. Like there's 
sort of a mass humanitarian crisis in Nigeria at the moment, which hasn't been talked about in the news at all. There's the fires in Bolivia, which are wiping out communities and probably it's one of the got such high levels of biodiversity. You've got jaguars, you've got tapirs, you've got spider monkeys, all these ecosystem regulators, and you just don't hear about it. And it that's is, it's, it is interesting how that little corner is quite often overlooked. You know, you've got, I mean, we, you do hear about it. You do hear about the clearances of the Amazon and you do hear about, you know, the loss of the Brazilian Atlantic rainforest. It is, it is heard about, but it always seems just slightly, slightly less so than the other issues you hear about throughout the world. And maybe it's because we have this image in our mind of a vast untouched Amazon. It's all just kind of too big to ever really go down in flames. But yeah, it is interesting. This is the first time when you when you message saying, hi, I'm going to talk about the fires in Bolivia that I hadn't heard of it before. And, you know, I'm someone who's got who's listening out for these things so I can talk about it on a podcast. <laughs> See, that's I don't know if I didn't know someone who was there who was actively posting about it. I don't know if I would have even come across it. Like you say, we try to stay up to date with current like global conservation things that are happening. And this in terms of conservation and biodiversity is massive. Mm. Like the knock on effects you're going to have from this. So you've got if you have jaguar populations that are declining, you've got increases in massive numbers of peccary, which then if they're close to people are going to destroy crops. You've got if tapir decline, there's massive seed spreaders in the area. So that has huge implications for forest regrowth. It's these huge knock on effects. And that's why we like Mongo Bay, I think, so much is because they really try to highlight conservation issues that are happening. Glow is not biased towards any particular region of the world. It's like, OK, this is happening right now. And this is what people are trying to do about it. So that's that's why I like that. So I'll, I'll post the link. And if I happen to come across any petitions or things like that to that are kind of lobbying the Bolivian government or if there are any donation pages or things like that I'll also post post that in the comments um, I mean this is why we gave the little disclaimer earlier that this might be quite a hard hitting podcast because uh, have you finished with the fires in Bolivia yeah yeah you you can go ahead with your one Great, because now I'm going to talk about the Sumatran rhino, which is, you know, just as... More depressing. <laughs> well, maybe, perhaps not more, but just as, uh, just as twinging on the heartstrings. So, there are, hang on, one, two, three, four, there are five species of rhinoceros in the world, the black and the white in Africa, the greater one-horned, the largest, in India, and then the Javan and the Sumatran in Indonesia and formerly Peninsula Malaya. And I'm going to talk about the Sumatran rhino. So at 2.5 metres long and weighing half a tonne, it is actually the smallest rhino species. And it's thought to be one of the least derived. So it shares much more traits with the ancient rhino ancestors than it does with the modern rhinos. And it's quite an old species. So uh, its Latin name is Dicerorhinus sumatrensis. And Dicerorhinus as a genus emerged about 23 million years ago in the early Miocene. So, you know... It's quite an old rhino. Does that have anything to do with the number of horns? Is that die as in? Dicerorhinus means two-horned nose. Two-horned nose, okay. And Sumatrensis means it's from Sumatra. Um, and no one's quite sure who the Sumatran rhino is closest related to. You've got three hypotheses, hypotheses even, conjugate that. Um, so 
Hypothesis one, it's closely related to the black and white rhinos of Africa because they have two horns, like the Sumatran rhino. Hypothesis two, the Sumatran rhinos are closest to the Indian and Javan rhinos because, you know, they're all in Asia. And hypothesis three, which is the one I kind of lean towards, I've just kind of skipped over the research, but I, I, it makes a lot of sense, is that the two African species, the Indian and the Javan, and then the Sumatran represent three separate lineages, um, which, you know, I think makes sense. Um, yeah, I think obviously, I mean, there's probably research to back up all three. Mm. Um, but I guess a lot of that evidence would come from, would that be fossil based or kind of just movements of the current rhinos and their distribution and kind of looking back historically where they would have been? Well, I would tend to shy away from hypothesis one and two because hypothesis one is purely morphological. And we know from the porcupines earlier that quills have evolved twice in rodents, convergent evolution. And I'll shy away from two because, you know, humans live all over the world, but we originated in Africa. Doesn't mean that we originated in California as a species. Um, the Sumatran rhino genetically is closest related to the woolly rhino and the Stephanorhinus, which are these two Eurasian extinct rhino species. Woolly rhinos are amazing. I wish they were still alive today. <laughs> rhinos are pretty amazing, yeah. Uh, maybe we'll do the woolly rhino next podcast. Um, <laughs> Uh, so this is getting on to the sad part about the Sumatran rhino. Best guess, and this is a generous guess, no more than 80 survive today. Um, that's, that's, we talked on, touched on this last time, but was, what was the word? Extinction vortex is kind oh, of... And the Sumatran rhino is extinction vortexing hard. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, perhaps a dozen survive in Indonesian Borneo. Borneo is an island divided between Indonesia and Malaysia, um, Brunei. Um, but all the others live in Sumatra. And the ones in Borneo are the Bornean subspecies, Diceroranus sumatrensis harrisoni, which is now extinct in the wild. And there are probably only 10 captive individuals uh, in various sanctuaries. Uh, one subspecies of Sumatran rhino is already extinct the northern Sumatran rhino, also known as the Chittagong rhino, and the northern hairy rhino. And it was actually the largest and most widespread subspecies, and it was the only subspecies native to India. And it used to go from India down into Indochina, Burma, Vietnam, Thailand, and now it's completely gone. And is this due to mainly rhino horn trade, sort of poaching kind of human actions? Almost exclusively for this subspecies, it is the rhino horn trade, yes, because parts of its habitat still exist. Kazaranga National Park, where I went two Christmases ago, um, uh, was, was part of their habitat. There are rumours that it persists in parts of Myanmar, the Tamanthi Wildlife Sanctuary, um, but because of the political situation, it's impossible to confirm. Um, Maybe if things quieten down, we can go on a hunt. <laughs> Let's them. do it. Let's go to the backwaters of Myanmar and find these last rhinos. Um, so the only subspecies that remains that we know about is the nominate subspecies, um, which is confined to Sumatra. Um, and it is entering an extinction vortex. So it's been reduced by habitat loss and hunting. Um, and now there are too few calves being born to even offset the natural losses to the population, let alone poaching and habitat loss. 
so they're really relatively few individuals as like relatively few offspring would it be that i've only ever seen them have kind of one um is it a calf yeah or baby rhino one calf at a time like like most big mammals they're case selection breeders so they invest a lot of energy into one calf not like a turtle they don't have oodles of babies and bet on at least some of them coming out um so yeah and genetic evidence suggests the species was probably never common they reckon there was a max of about 58,000 individuals um and it's just been in a steady decline ever since but to uh, go from that to 80 is it yeah and that's generous it uh, you're, yeah. you're lucky if there's 80 um interestingly the initial decline was probably not human related uh at the end of the last ice age when all the ice melted much of southeast asia was joined to indonesia in this one big landmass called sundaland um and obviously that is now almost entirely flooded uh and that was a, a massive loss to this species um i think that's quite important to recognize that sometimes because i know anthropogenic threats are causing a lot of destruction and sort of yeah massive declines in in biodiversity and species but sometimes there are sort of natural causes as well that sort of contribute to extinctions and that's what we've seen with the the last at least five extinctions on on earth that has been natural causes yeah so all of it all of the islands of indonesia and malaysia were all joined together in in one landmass called sundaland uh and actually it probably wasn't all rainforest as the remnants are now it was probably a a kind of savanna mosaic which is thought that that's the original habitat of the Sumatran rhino and as the la as the wa waters rose it was forced into the more hilly rainforest areas uh which is an interesting you know point <laughs> yeah I, i'd imagine that sort of kind of the hilly kind of forested areas are where they can they would do well given their small size in terms of being able to kind of hide and move in like through the trees and stuff but I guess it just shows how they can adapt to yeah. different habitats yeah and the the biggest problem facing these rhinos now is that because the populations have become more isolated the chances of them finding healthy mates decreases and to add a double whammy onto it females are something which is called induced ovulators which means ovulate when males are around and females that go too long without ovulating or mating can actually develop tumors which prevent them bearing young even if they eventually do mate so it's one thing after another with these rhinos oh it's just it makes me sad when it's species like that that have things that they have low sort of reproductive success anyway um sort of few offspring and then you've also got human pressures as well and onto the human pressures of all the sumatran rhino habitat remain remaining only one is considered possibly viable uh and this is the looser ecosystem i think i'm pronouncing that right how would you pronounce l e u s e r yeah i'd say yeah looser the looser ecosystem part of which is looser national park unfortunately not all of it um and it's the only place where there have been recorded natural rhino births every year but you know you have immense challenges in this ecosystem so only about half of it is protected and as you were saying with the folks in bolivia there are only 150 rangers to carry out patrols of 400,000 hectares of forest wow and it takes a team of five rangers 22 days to complete a single full patrol on foot and carrying all their equipment 
that's the thing you're always going to have areas that aren't covered but I think it really hit hard what species was that the northern white rhino the one that had armed guards yeah Sudan um Nijin and Fatu the three and then Sudan died yeah so when it gets to that stage which hopefully it won't have to reach that stage with Sumatran rhinos but where you have to have armed guards 24-7 to protect the last two or three of the species. Um, yeah, that, that really, one, we've really not done well by our rhinos, guys. <laughs> Out of all the big animals, it's the rhinos we've really hit. And uh, it's the thing as well with the trade. Um, I know you've got cultural practices coming in here, which maybe extend back thousands of years, but rhino horns are made of keratin, which is the same thing your fingernails are made out of. So and there's scientific evidence to prove that. So it to me, it's a shame that attitudes haven't changed as science has, um, as we found out that they it's the same thing as as fingernails. Um, Here's an interesting concept. There's a guy in South Africa uh, who we've talked about before. And what he's doing is he's captive breeding. I think it's white rhinos may or maybe black. I'm not sure. Um, And he's got a herd of about 200 now. And oh every, yeah, we were talking about this guy. Sounds incredible. Yeah, and every couple of years, he so he's got them in this massive enclosure, and he's successfully breeding them. They're not wild; they're you know captive bred animals. And every couple of years, he shaves off the horn without harming the animals. And so he is gathering this stockpile of rhino horn, and I think he's now got the second largest stockpile in the world. And his plan is, he's going to tackle the poaching crisis by flooding the market. He's going to sell legal rhino horn and ship it off to, you know, parts of Southeast Asia. And by targeting the market at the consumer end, he plans to just cut out the middleman. So there's no one to finance the poaching because they can buy it cheaper from him than they can the poachers. So that's, I don't know, it's an interesting solution. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it. What do you think? I mean, I don't know, when we talked about this before, I was just sort of amazed that this was his attitude towards it because also how hard must that be it's a a guarded I think it's a secret where this location is obviously because you don't want poachers finding out about this massive stash of of rhino horns but it just sounds like such a a strange setup of kind of like fenced in cameras kind of sort of secret location with all these rhino horns but then he's trying to tackle conservation in in a positive way Um, But I had I wouldn't have thought of that idea in terms of actually accumulating horns in order to to stop the that market. Yeah. Whether it'll work or not is is another fact. Like obviously it's probably several years down the line before yeah. he decides to just flood the market. Um, I think the South African government have flat out said you can't do this. And so he's like, Well, I've got it all, but I think he needs to wait for the laws to change. Um, yeah. so, you know, there is hope for the rhinos. I don't know if he's it, but there is hope. And there is hope for the Sumatran rhinos because Indonesia is developing a Sumatran rhino sanctuary in Lusa because it has several captive breeding sanctuaries uh, across Sumatra, which have successfully have have bred rhinos in the wild um, to then one day be released. So that's good. Um, But this is the first sanctuary in Lusa, uh, which is part of their prime habitat. So... There's a little bit of a, a weird thing in that nearly a fifth of the area of the land that is allocated to the sanctuary also falls within the concession of a palm oil company. 
and no one's quite sure how that's being sorted out but <laughs> yeah it's you know there is there is a little bit of hope for the Sumatran rhino and I think hope as well we had this in one of our lectures at university um this is sort of very cutting edge sort of scientific research but what they were looking at doing to bring back sort of populations this was for the northern white rhino was because they have cells from the individuals um so previous individuals have died but they are storing these cells what they're looking at doing is basically say you have a skin cell or a differentiated cell that's already got a role in in the body what they're looking at doing is trying to undifferentiate so that it goes back to a gamete which so is then, a sex cell yeah so then what they're looking at doing if you've got male cells female cells if you undifferentiate them back to sort of pluripotent cells which are the ones which are undifferentiated when you start to form an embryo trying to then have in vitro kind of rhino fertilization going on and then all you would need is a surrogate rhino mother possibly of another species like that's happened with sheep before um where they would have carried the in vitro embryo and then that would be a way to bring rhinos back but that's kind of a, a futuristic kind of field of field of research i heckin love science so i think <laughs> The gist of that, because I was not paying attention in some of the stem cell lectures we had, is I think you reverse engineer a skin cell to make it into a sperm and egg with all the genetic information, then make that fertilize an embryo, then put that embryo in a mother. Is that the gist of it? Yeah. Gotcha. So then you'd have just like a anucleated cell, something without a nucleus. So then you could just implant that embryo into the surrogate mother it is it's very complex and i'm probably not doing that field justice by me trying to remember what we did in a lecture two years ago but it was very <laughs> very interesting like we're gonna get a message from one of our zoology mates saying you clearly weren't paying attention this is all wrong let me explain it to you <laughs> what's a 9am lecture in all fairness so <laughs> <laughs> well that is hopefully a note of hope to end the global conservation segment on part two join us after the break grab another coffee if you're feeling i don't know not caffeinated enough and we will return in part three when we talk about the reintroduction of the beaver Welcome back, everyone. This is part three of the podcast. So this is our local conservation topic. So we will be talking about beavers. And not just any beavers, but we're also going to talk about legal and illegal beavers because such a thing exists. <laughs> no, I was amazed when I discovered this concept. That you've got illegal beavers that have just been released um, in places in the UK. So a little bit of background about the beaver. Um, it is a native uh, UK species. There are two species of beaver, the American beaver, Castor canadiensis, and the European beaver, Castor fiber. Um, and the European beaver was extinct in Britain around AD 1600, maybe 1789 in Yorkshire. There's a, there's a hypothesis there. And the last wild population was in the River Ness in Scotland. And it has now returned. And it is the first successful reintroduction of a British native species. 
I think it's quite impressive the reintroduction programs that have happened. So I think the one that got a lot of attention in 2017 was the one in Cornwall. So it's yes. the Cornwall Beaver Project, and they released two. So it was a single pair. They released two individuals in a place called Woodland Valley Farm, and the reason they chose this location because it was near um, sort of a, a village or sort of a little town that had been repeatedly hard, been hard hit by flooding. And so they brought in these two beavers as a potential solution, basically, for stopping the floods and managing the river. Do we just want to say a bit about that? Like, why, why are beavers good for that? Are they, why, how can they, like, um, influence landscapes? Well, beavers are really good for that sort of thing, because as I'm sure anyone who's watched um, Narnia will know that beavers build dams. Um, they build dams in order to create their own habitat. Like us and like elephants and wild boar, they are ecosystem engineers. So they will build a dam across the flow of a river or stream. And what this will do is that will block up the water flow and slow it down. It's not a complete stop. They are quite porous dams, but they will create a lake behind the dam. And in this lake, they will build their lodge. And the reason they actually build well, it's thought the reason they build the, the dam is because by putting their lodge in the middle of the water, they're safe from predators. And also because the lake gradually floods and gets larger and larger, that means they can access their food, which is trees and shoots, uh, without actually leaving the water as the forest gradually becomes flooded. Um, and so interestingly, the European beaver actually builds smaller dams and less often than the American beaver. Um, but the building of the dams is something which is quite controversial, uh, especially because of the potential that people think it might have on spawning fish. So diadromous fish like the Atlantic salmon, in particular in Scotland, obviously need to swim upstream to spawn. And so people worry that dams will prevent this. And angling is obviously a really big industry, both in Scotland and in the UK. I think that critics of this often forget that beavers and salmon managed to live happily together for hundreds of thousands of years before we turned up. Um, because the reality is that salmon have no issue navigating past dams, which are both porous and leaky. Um, and so the effect on diadromous fish is negligible to say the least. I think that's, it has caused a big issue in Scotland, particularly at the moment, because what has happened is there's this illegal released population of beavers in somewhere called Tayside. I hope I'm saying that right. Tayside, Scotland. No, I think uh, it's Tayside. Tayside, okay. <laughs> oh, no, I'm joking. I can't do a Scottish accent. I can't do it. Yeah, we're both shit accents, so <laughs> sorry we don't mean to offend Scottish people. Um, but so Tayside, for how to say it, um, up to 250 beavers there, and no one's really sure how they got there is thought that they maybe escaped from private collections. Um, interestingly, I did read that there is a, they, they genetically tested these beavers and they say they're closest to beavers from, I think it's Bulgaria, is it Bulgaria or Belarus, somewhere beginning, no, Bavaria, Bavaria. And there is a wildlife park in Tayside with Bavarian European beavers. So I don't think anyone said anything, and I hope I'm not going to get an angry knock on the door by someone, but it may have been, you know, oops, the beavers got out. 
but I mean it's it's a pretty impressive population but like you were saying sort of with the angling and I think with with farmers as well it's caused a lot of a lot of conflict and actually last year in 2019 87 beavers were shot so this was legal legally shot under licenses in Scotland um to because of conflicts that they had with, with people and with fishing with farms and so if you want to check we both follow them on Instagram they're really great in terms of raising awareness about what's going on with the beavers they are called scots beavers um on instagram and so they are trying to campaign with a bunch of other organizations to translocate beavers to areas of suitable habitat instead of killing them so there's a petition which we'll put the link to nearly seventeen thousand people have signed it which is fantastic um and basically there is their hashtag is move don't kill so they want translocation rather than killing because like we've kind of touched on they're just fantastic ecosystem engineers they are a cheap alternative to sort of land management water management and there are places in the uk if under the right sort of scientific supervision could really benefit from reintroduced beavers and a really a good example of where that might be, or where we know it is, is the Napdale Forest region in Argyll in southwest Scotland. And this was actually the location of the first legal beaver reintroduction. Um, so 11 were reintroduced in 2009 in the Napdale Forest. Um, and the population there is now sustainable, sorry, stable and self-sustaining. Because they were from Norway, weren't they, I think? It they was. were. So, yeah, the population in Argyle are actually from Norway. And so all European beavers fall into two groups, a Western group or an Eastern group, based on what, on what side of an imaginary line that goes from Poland, north and south. British beavers belong to the Western group. And so that's why these Norwegian beavers were suitable for reintroduction, because it is very important you get the right beavers. Because if we had American beavers here, that would not work because our ecosystem has not evolved to deal with that level of habitat modification in the same way that if you put European beavers in America, that wouldn't work. Um, and an example so of this- you've got, you've got the trees as well, the specific trees that they feed on. Yeah. Um, so like hazel, birch, alder, willow, aspen, they are ones that are in the UK. So if you had American ones, that might, yeah, mess up the ecosystem. Because, you know, introducing animals does, especially if you get the wrong animal, it does carry risks. So in Tierra del Fuego in Patagonia in 1946, uh, 25 American beavers were released to start up a South American fur trade. Patagonia had never had beavers. They're a paleoarctic species. No beavers in Patagonia, no native predators. The trees hadn't evolved to withstand beaver predation. And the beavers felled vast swathes of the forest and have created a weird kind of unnatural bogland. So you have to be careful with beavers. Like us, they are ecosystem engineers. But if you do it right, like you do at Napdale and uh, in Cornwall, they can bring tremendous, tremendous benefits back to the ecosystem. Because there was some interesting research as well going into sort of some unusual benefits that came from bringing beavers back, which they didn't expect. So there's a population of beavers in, in Devon um, and they actually found a huge increase in local common frog populations as Ooh. a result of introducing beavers because you had the ponds that were expanding in sizes as a result of damming activity of beavers 
Um, and so over time, these long, these large ponds sort of silt up and they will create fertile soil. Um, so that's kind of this whole, you kind of need long-term thinking when you're trying to reintroduce something. So the fact that, yes, maybe when you first reintroduce beavers, there'll be a bit of conflict. You think they're destroying the trees or altering the ecosystem in, in a negative way. But say 10 years down the line, you're going to see really positive um, changes to the habitat. A classic example of that is in Yellowstone, when the American beavers were driven out, when they were later brought back, uh, they had a massive knock-on effect on moose and bear populations. So obviously the beavers came back, they they came back largely as a result of the reintroduction of the wolf, but that's a whole other story. Um, so they we came back. They, as well. <laughs> we should do a whole podcast just on Yellowstone. Um, so the beavers came back, they dammed the streams. This meant the water flowed more slowly. So there was less flooding downstream. The waters, the, the rivers actually changed course. And because now part of the forest was partially submerged in these beaver lakes, not all of the trees could be cropped down to the bottom, down to the lowest growth by the elk, which were very high numbers because there were relatively few wolves. This meant there was more food for moose because moose like submerged aquatic vegetation. So the moose population increased and the moose population actually helped to drive up the bear population because bears predate quite heavily on baby moose at certain times of the year. So the reintroduction of one beaver family not only changed the course of streams, which changed the whole erosion of the landscape and made it uh, less um, heavily silted and heavily sedimented, it also brought up bear populations and moose populations and all the animals that are affected by those. So they tremendous effects to the ecosystem. See, that's what I just, I find incredible about kind of recognizing what links there are um, within sort of individual species and ecosystems because um, it, it all just has knock-on effects. Um, you can't just treat one species as a standalone thing. You, you kind of have to understand, yeah, how it interacts with everything really. Um, We're all in this together, as I think they said in, is that, is that a thing from High School Musical? Possibly, I've never watched it, but... <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm pretending like I know it. <laughs> but yeah, that might be a good, a good positive note to end on, because I don't want to uh, go over the time limit as we so often do. Yeah. So I think, yeah, we can end it there. Um, that if there's, if you want more information about any of this, we're going to post all the um, resources in the comments, um, some fantastic stuff on beavers. There was, so Gillian Burke did a thing about beavers on BBC Winterwatch. Um, and there's also someone who did a radio program called Brett Westwood um, about beavers. So yeah, check those out. And um, we hope you enjoyed our, our latest ramble. See you next time. Bye. Bye.